Well, would you please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to the book of Revelation? And we'll begin reading this morning in chapter 1 in Revelation 1, but the, the text of our sermon this morning will be on the fifth church in the letters to the seven churches, which begins in its address from Jesus in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So once we've done reading chapter 1, we'll move over to chapter 3 and verse number 1. Please follow along as we read together in God's holy word, Revelation 1, 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and testimony of, Christ, of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, 
and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out in the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus says the word of God. Let's pray together. Spirit of God, come and speak to providence this morning. Speak through the words of Christ. Speak through the words of the Almighty. But come and counsel us, comfort us, command us, give concerns. If, if there's any commendation, then Lord, encourage us with this. But, but nevertheless, come and speak your mind and your heart to us, all things that we need to hear this morning. We want to be like John. We want to bow down before you and hear your voice like the roar of waters. We want your voice to speak authoritatively in our hearts. Do not let us run away. Do not let us have deaf ears. Father, speak to us. We know your words have life. So, Father, bring life in the message of hope this morning. Bring life in this word this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Christ, the life of the church. It's more than a sound, isn't it? And it's very recognizable. Even now, the steady, predictable sound from a heart monitor like in a hospital room, can be heard in your mind and then the flat tone of the signal. It's a sound that's hard to forget and one, one that brings back a flood of memories if you've heard it. Some of friends, some of your dearest loved ones, but all with the pang of finality. Life. It's precious. Under the scrutinizing eyes of Jesus Christ, the church of Sardis had that steady tone, not beat, but tone, saying no vital signs, 
while outwardly the church appeared to be alive by its activity, by its, its appearances, uh, visibly, physically, inwardly the truth was that there was no life in their church. And that's exactly how Jesus puts it. You are alive, but you're dead. No room for argument. It's his diagnosis. There's no other doctor to go to to get a second opinion. Jesus says, you are dead. The great physician and the head of the church has pronounced this church as absolutely dead. You look alive, but when we examine your heart, there's no beat. Well, the church of Sardis had left its guard down. It had failed to purposefully engage in a relationship with their Savior, and it was suffering utter heart failure. The city of Sardis actually serves as an illustration of how death, how that death can overcome a church. Let's talk about the city of Sardis for a moment. The city of Sardis. This city was due east of Smyrna that we um, spoke of last week. It, it laid in a valley, but the fortress was sort of on top of an acropolis. It was the northernmost city of the entire group, and it was a, a city that was built re- relatively with flat, uh, around a flat country with this huge, majestic um, sort of a castle or fortress at the top. It was a, a very old city. As a matter of fact, by the time of this writing in Revelation, this city uh, had changed hands many times, but it was over 1,300 years old by the time of the book of Revelation was written. It was, this city is, goes as far back as 1,200 years B.C. It was made famous by a, a very wealthy king named Croesus. Have you ever, maybe an uh, older person has heard this before, he is rich as Croesus. Anybody hear that before? It's kind of an old saying. And Croesus was just a wealthy king. Whatever he seemed to put his hands to, he almost had the Midas touch, if you will. He, he just had, had troves and vaults full of wealth. So it, it was very much a, a, a Fort Knox type of city where it, it had the, the keepings, it had the treasury. It was one of the wealthiest cities, even though it wasn't one of the largest ones, one of the wealthiest cities of the ancient times. It was the capital city of a Lydian empire that is a, a segment of people, a culture of people that you probably heard very little about. In the city was the worship of Artemis and also Diana, a fertility goddess. And so this city, though, by the time that John is writing, it, it has become aged. It's 1,300 years old. There's a lot that needs to have some rebuilding and, and some construction, too, but it was sort of a, a dead city by the time that their writing, the writing comes to them. Herodotus, the famous Greek historian, tells of a mythological founder of, um, of uh, Sardis, whose name is Meles. Now, Meles, when he was founding this city, he had built these great walls, and 
And uh, the story is told by Herodotus, this myth, this myth, that when the city walls were, were built, this fortress was built up on the Acropolis, that Meles carried a, a, a male lion in his arms so as to signify strength. And he carried it around on the walls that he had built, at least on three sides. But when he came to the fourth side, the fourth wall of this mighty fortress, he came to that wall, he, he decided that that wall didn't need to be built so high. As a matter of fact, he, he decided that there didn't need to be a wall there on that fourth side because the, the elevation and the pitch, the, it was very steep on that side of this, of this mountain. And so there didn't need to be a wall. Who, the, the mountain itself was the wall. There was hardly anybody imaginable that could be, uh, that could be thought of as someone who could ascend. Well, many years had passed since Meles had founded this city, and many times it had been exchanged here and there throughout the things. But this Lydian Empire became sieged by the great Persian Empire. And you think, remember Darius and, and the Persian Empire, we think of Esther and Daniel and all those. It was the Babylonian Empire, then the Medo-Persian Empire and the Persian Empire. Well, eventually they spread west towards uh, Sardis and other places, and came up against this little Lydian empire that, although it was well fortified, especially in its headquarters there in Sardis. Well, the Persian king came up against Sardis, and it just couldn't uh, overwhelm this. The soldiers, the many lost in battle, really at the, at the valley around this fortress. And the king of Persia at the time is Cyrus. You might know him as Cyrus the Great. Well, Cyrus was unsuccessful in his attacks on the city, at least on the three sides, and was really perplexed. And so his military just decided to just sit down outside the city and sort of have a siege on it, just cut off things going in and out. But it was taking a while for this um, siege to really take place. So Cyrus came up with a plan. He decided to offer a soldier... Um, who would climb the, the steep side of that fourth side that had no wall and, and show any sort of way that his armies could flood the city just from, from that steep side rather than going over the, the walls because the city, he had noticed, at least from the distance, that there didn't appear to be any guards really on the top of that fourth side without the wall. Well, one of the soldiers is told in the evening hours was, was, was watching that side and thinking, you know, what this great reward would be if he could figure out a way to lead the armies up this steep way. The story is told that a soldier was walking along, a soldier belonging to Sardis on top of the mountain was walking along and, and he dropped his helmet and it went tumbling down, clinkety clank down the side of this 1,500 foot mountain. And so the soldier then, looked down, and he scrambled down a path that seemed to be just a little bit too familiar to him. And it seemed to be that as he climbed back up the mountain, it seemed to have a little bit of an ease to it. Well, the, the Persian soldier watching this, this soldier recovering his helmet realized, ah, there's the path. And he led the way to victory as Cyrus the Great historically would overwhelm the city of Sardis by means of the easy route up this path. Sardis was overwhelmed very quickly. Well, the church of Sardis seemed to have a problem itself. The church in Sardis seemed to have all of the appearances of strength, all of the appearances of, of life, but really a, 
a major artery was dead. It was a lifeless church. And very much reflected what this story reminds us of in history, the fact is that this church of of Sardis had no doubt rallied at its beginning. It was likely started by the Apostle Paul in his in his missionary journeys, it had no doubt probably rallied at its beginning in an uncompromising preaching of the gospel message. But soon, because of its lack of heart, it flatlined in the eyes of the Lord. So this morning, we need to learn about what Christ has to say about this church. And we need to ask ourselves the question, does providence demonstrate anything that is like this church? For we have found ourselves to be, to be listening, as the Spirit has been preaching to us, of four previous churches. Now we come across this, this church and we wonder, is there anything reflective about our church in this? So this morning, we want to look, first of all, at the commendation. Now, all four previous churches had commendations. You're doing this, but you're not doing this. But notice as we look down at this um, chapter 3 and verse number 2, at verse number 1, towards the end, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead, and there is no commendation. There is no commendation. Your works are born out of deadness, if there is any even works. There is no commendation. Now this, by the way, would be a fearful thing for any church to be in the presence of Christ and for him to say, I find no good thing about your church. No doubt you've been around churches that are just very apparently dead. In in, uh, Europe, church buildings are found with death and emptiness and and, uh, quietness and in Europe, there's great cathedrals that today are being remodeled into apartment buildings because the people had lost the desire for the hearing of the Word of God. And so the community has become so secularized, it has no, no understanding and no, uh, no place for the hearing of the gospel. Well, sometimes there's churches that aren't just empty, but sometimes there's churches that are full that are still dead. Sometimes there's churches that have, that have the appearances of liveliness, but Jesus Christ has found them flatlining. So what does he say then are his concerns? And this morning there's several, several truths, several lessons that we can learn from his concerns. And that is that he says there are some signs of a dead church. And the first thing that he brings about to them, he says, I have found your works. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. What's begun to happen in this church is is the people of the church have found other things to do than to serve Jesus Christ. They have... They have become more interested with the world around them, more interested in their plans, in their schedule, in their appointments, in their their hobbies, in their whatever they want to accomplish. They become more interested in other things that have pulled their heart away from the testimony of Jesus Christ. He says, your works are incomplete. Now, in, in other churches, we had seen that some had 
had truth and they were working out truth, but they, they weren't loving. And some were, were loving and their works were, were replete. They were just wonderful out in the community, but they were struggling on holding on to truth. But here he says, you're not even trying to live from me. Your works are incomplete. There's, when I come in and ask you, what are you up to that is found in the grace of the gospel? What is coming, what is, what is being prominent, what is being celebrated when you gather and as you minister to one another and to others? And he says, you're not even ministering. You've found other things to do. You've found other gods to serve. You have a church website. You have a church sign. You have a building for gathering. You have organization. You have a lot of appearances, and, and the community around you thinks that you're a church. And Jesus says, you were a church, but you left. You left my presence. You left grace at the door. You left your Bible closed. You stayed at home. You, you did whatever. You became more concerned with everything else of life than life itself found in me. And so Jesus does an autopsy on the church. And he finds that this church, what has is, what is led to this incomplete work, incompleteness in works is that they were too satisfied with their present condition. The fact is, if something isn't growing, it's dying. If something isn't growing, it's dying. And gospel growth, growth in Jesus Christ, is it's at the very center, it's the lifeblood of a true church. Because growth indicates life. When there's growth, we say, ah, something's alive here. Something has vitality. Something has liveliness. It has a, has a heartbeat to it. It's growing. But the people in Sardis were, were not growing spiritually. And it was made known by their lack of ministry. Meaningful ministry. Again, they had started out with a rally around the gospel as a young church, vibrant and celebrating Jesus Christ, whose lives were transformed, but they became tired of change and distracted from change. Well, the church that isn't changing is dying. If we are not growing, we are dying physically, spiritually as well. They just really looked around and said, I would rather be comfortable than change. And really, that's the choice of, of us on a daily basis in our growth and walk with Jesus Christ. Would we rather be comfortable or would we rather be changed? Change, in terms of gospel grace, means growth. And when things would stir in the church and when, when there would be something of um, a, a demand, a greater commitment, a greater involvement, something that involved personal, personal sacrifice and personal investment and personal um, reaching outside of the comfort zone. Anyone calling for that kind of change 
was considered either a fanatic, someone who is just unreachable, and that's just whoever, and that's sister or brother, so-and-so, and they're always just on fire for the Lord, and, and that's fine. I'm never going to be that way. Or maybe they even looked under suspicion, and this is the easier way for them to excuse their own lack of desire for change, and they just said, oh, that person's a compromiser. Just feel a little uneasy about where the church is going. There's something up going on here, and there's some compromise. I'm feeling it. So when we excuse that sort of thing so easily, we really are just dismissing God's call in our life to examine maybe maybe we're the compromiser. Sunday after Sunday, the church would meet together but it wouldn't have an individual involvement to the gospel ministry that it had once been called to. There were a few, he says. Strengthen the things that remain. I know I see a few of you who are still contending for the gospel. There's a few of you who are committed to, to transforming grace. There's a true of you, a few of you that want to see, that want to just rub up against other believers and purposefully and inten- intentionally move towards one another in a cross centered way. There's a few of you, he says, but it's not known of the whole church. There's a few of you who gather. There's a few of you who are making disciples. There's a few of you who are making my name great, but there's, but there's a lot of you who aren't showing up. And this can look in many different ways in many different churches. But in essence, what it is, is a a denial of the grace that should be abounding in our lives. So Jesus issues a command. He says, in verse number three, remember then what you have received and heard. Now, what is it that they had received and heard? What is it that they had received and heard? Was it a special marketing initiative? Was it a a special tagline or a a logo trademark phrase? Had they received a building by the means of a fundraising effort? What is it that they had received and heard? That is vital, that is the first step to getting the heartbeat back. What is certainly what they had heard. What you had received and heard, keep it. Keep what? What they had received and heard from the apostles and others who had preached Jesus Christ in their midst. Listen, what what makes a church alive is how big a deal it makes Jesus Christ. What, what brings a church life, what sustains life, is keeping Christ in the middle, the true lifeblood, the vine in the middle of the church. It is making a very big deal about Jesus and not getting away from Jesus in every part of it, sincerity and vulnerability and transparency and, and intimacy and intentionality. And it's all Jesus-centered. And the apostle, the the writer Jesus and John is saying here, Sardis, 
Come back to Jesus. Come back to Jesus. I'm not talking about programs. I'm not talking about about, uh, redoing things in your church building. Come back to, to Jesus. Fan the flames of the gospel truth in your church. Bring these things to your remembrance. Celebrate them. Speak of them often. Rehearse the gospel truths when you're with one another. But don't forget the good news and the one, Jesus Christ. Remember what you've seen and you've heard and remember it. Stir up remembrance amidst each other. Let the little children hear of it and then be remembered of it. Let young people hear of it and then be reminded of it. Let, let young couples and singles and, and elderly and, and everybody in the entire church, let them hear Jesus from each other. Keep remembering it. Remember what you have seen and what you have heard. Go back to the truths of the word of God. Go back and look at the things that became familiar to you. They lost meaning. Go back to the things that looked, that looked to you routine and common about God's grace and go back and sit in them, discuss them, draw up memory of them, remember them and bring them to life. What had happened in the church of Sardis is that they had a severe case of forgetfulness. They had the songs and they had the doctrine and they they had the programs. But they had forgot to look at the words. They had forgot to look at the one who it was all about. And remember what you had seen and you had heard. And so remember the gospel. Remember the teaching of the apostles and keep it. He says, behave like you have been taught the truths of Christ. Act like a real church. Act like one who is beloved from the Father, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Act like what you have been called unto. Act like a church. Pray together, weep together, laugh together, share together, worship together, sing together. Whenever the songs are sung, whenever the the prayers are prayed, whenever the word is preached, whenever it is taught, whenever it is testified, rub up against one another. But act like a church. Let your fellowship in Christ thrive. Let it be alive. Let it be lively. Behave like you know the truth. Behave like not just a traditional church, but behave like a church of Jesus Christ. Whatever your expectations are of of a church that you've been part of or, or that you think should be a church is how churches are, some of that can inform it, but ultimately... Behave like one who has been ransomed and redeemed from the world and brought into the kingdom of light and now celebrates it endlessly with other followers of Jesus Christ. Behave like 
Your life has been transformed by the truth of Jesus Christ. Keep it. And he says, repent. He says, repent. And if you don't repent, he says, I will not, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come against you. I will come like a thief if you will not repent. If you won't turn away from going through the motions, if you won't just find life in Jesus Christ and, and help and comfort and counsel in life in the body, then I will come and you won't be a church anymore. Your testimony will be lost. I will come like a thief in the night. In Matthew 26, I'm sorry, Matthew 24 and Luke 12 and other passages, this idea of the thief in the night always carries the idea of imminent judgment. This isn't a threat of Jesus' second coming. This is a threat that the Lord would destroy this church in particular if they would not turn around if they would not call sin, sin in their lives and stop excusing sin, if they, will, if they will not make Jesus Christ a priority, he will dismiss them into judgment. He will shatter them as a, as a church. And so he says, there are still a few names in Sardis, verse number four that permit, that, that uh, have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And so he goes on about this, this garments. He says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And so he says, you will be clothed. Those who really are holding fast to the gospel of Christ, they'll be clothed in white garments. Now, white garments have several meanings, and it's okay to say, you know what? I think all of them might apply to this. White garments in ancient times were worn for special occasions. They were also worn for, by those who were prominent in the society or city fathers, for example, would be would, be, would wear white robes. Jesus says he will not erase his name from the book of life, but will confess his name before the Father and before his angels. Do you, do you hear that promise? Jesus, okay, not Peter at the gates, but Jesus will announce the name of those who follow him before the audience of all the heavenly beings, whether they be his servants, the angels, or saints gone by, your name announced before all the heavenly hosts and all the audience in heaven, but specifically one person in particular. Who is it? Say it out loud. The Father. 
Jesus says, I will put white robes on you. That is, you will be significant because of the work of grace that I have done in your life. You will be prominent. You will be special. But in particular, Jesus recalls back unto this image in Luke 19 that he had shared with his disciples. And I'm sorry, not Luke 19, but in Revelation 19. John says, and I heard, as it were, a voice of a great multitude as a sound of many waters and a sound of mighty thunderings saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, these things are true sayings of God. These garments represent eternal purity and holiness. These robes, these robes signify a security in Jesus Christ. Now listen. What Jesus is saying here is that those who have life in Christ will walk with Christ. You say you have life in Christ. You say Jesus is your Savior. You say Jesus is your Lord. Walk with him. Walk with him. And those who walk with Christ will be known by him. Fellowship, intimacy, oneness. Those who walk with Christ will be known by him, and those who will be known by him will be worthy. Worthy of what? Worthy of joining him at this table, and those who will be worthy will be announced. You say, what's the big announcement? It is what we had recalled, this. Jesus brings his church before the Father. And he says, Father, this is my bride. This is my bride. That's the announcement. Now, where does that leave us here at Providence this morning? Are we fitted together like a bride? Are we adoring the groom? Are we gathering to tell stories about his love for us? Are we praising his name? Are we, are we bringing our petitions before him? Are we ministering his grace and his love? Do we show life? I wonder this morning how Jesus looks at providence. Jesus finds us. I feel very accountable as, as a servant, as a star, if you will, for this church. That I have to give an account of this church before the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is our desire here at church to be a church that is alive. The autopsy of a dead church is that there's no grace thriving 
disciples, born, made, launching out. That's the autopsy of a dead church. But what are the signs of life in a church that is thriving? The signs of life is that Jesus Christ is all and in all. And that this church is rehearsing, the church that is alive is rehearsing Jesus every chance they get. They're meeting together for prayer, not dismissing it to several, but they know they need to pray with the church. They're ministering to people no matter what age group and sharing with them truths and practical ways about who Jesus is because they want everybody to remember who Jesus is. They're not taking it for granted, but they're owning ministry together. They're fellowshipping with one another throughout the days and testifying, encouraging one another. There's just life and it's just lively and it's almost uncontained or uncontainable in a good way. It's just happening. Sprouts and shoots growing here and there, meetings one-on-one and, and lives encouraged and prayers being said and songs being sung and, sung and the testimony of the gospel being shared over here. It just sprouts. It's just growing. This is the testimony of a live, a church that is alive. How does... The Lord find us here this morning. Does Jesus say to the Father, Behold, my bride, Providence, isn't she something? This is what we should desire, is that we give Christ every delight, that we hear what he has to say to us this morning. Let's pray.